Hello and welcome to another episode of Phenomena. This is the podcast where we discuss the lives of Irish women who have been left out of history. I am Shauna and I am joined as always by Maria. And today Maria is going to tell us about... I'm going to talk about Teresa Devey, who was a playwright in the kind of 1930s, 40s and 50s predominantly. I learned about her first when I was in college and she's one of the women that I first thought of when I thought of starting this podcast. Cool. So I'm excited for you guys to know about her. Teresa Devey was born on the 21st of January 1894 at Landscape in Passage Road, Waterford. She was the youngest of 13 children born to a wealthy businessman, Edward Devey, and his wife, Mary Feehan Devey. So just to situate her into the literary landscape, she was born three years before Yeats, Lady Gregory and Edward Martin founded the Irish Literary Theatre, which later became the Abbey Theatre. Unfortunately, Teresa's father died at the age of 56 when she was only two years old. So she was reared exclusively by her seven sisters and her mother. Wow. I'm still like, oh my God, she was the youngest of 13 children. And like growing up in like some sort of matriarchal utopia, one would hope. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there's enough of them. Look, maybe it's a good thing for Teresa's mother that she didn't have any, you know, that her husband did die at a young age because could she have taken many more children? Who knows? That is sad that he died at that age. And I apologize. (laughs) Great, great cover. So throughout her childhood, Teresa's mother encouraged her to write short stories about her life at Landscape. And her mother was also a devout Catholic who imparted her religious sentiments to a young Teresa. And this religious element emerged in several of her plays and she continued to be quite devout throughout her lifetime going on pilgrimages by herself and, you know, just appreciating the work of God, if you will. So her uncle, Father Thomas Feehan, was a Land League activist and his intense political awareness figures strongly in her adult life and in her writing. So from quite a young age, we're already witnessing some of the themes that emerged throughout her work. Did you ever, so Shauna studied theatre, so have you actually ever heard of Teresa Devey? No, I haven't. I'm lucky insofar as there's a lecturer in UCA for Walsh, and he did a lot of work on Teresa Devey, and I had him for a seminar class when I was in final year of college. So that's how I heard about her. But I've spoken to a lot of other people who would be interested in theatre and her name isn't a name that really tends to come up very often, which I do find quite interesting because, as we will see, she was quite successful at the time. For sure. I, yeah, like off the top of my head, I don't think I've heard of her, but perhaps I came across her name in passing. But if I did, it wasn't enough for me to to know enough about it that I remembered, you know. So she attended the local Ursuline College as a boarder where she excelled academically and extracurricularly. Her published debut was in the local school magazine and by all accounts, she was a lively, cheerful and popular student. Interestingly, she actually lived beside the Ursuline College, but it would have been very common for wealthy Catholic families to send their children there as boarders rather than as day students. 
she'd probably have more room in the in the boarding house than a, than in her own house anyway. That's true, but don't forget she was the youngest, so you'd imagine. Oh yeah, they probably all left already. Possibly, there's not a whole lot written about like all of her siblings because that would take up far too much space. So in 1913, she set out to UCD in Dublin to study for an arts degree with the intention of becoming a teacher. However, she was already displaying symptoms of Meniere's disease, which is a disorder which affects the inner ear, leading to vertigo and deafness. So she initially transferred to University College Cork, UCC, my alma mater, where she could have treatment at the Cork Eye, Ear and Throat Hospital and where she could be slightly nearer to her family. Her increasing deafness meant that she couldn't continue with her BA studies, unfortunately. So she dropped out of college and went to London in 1914 to learn lip reading, as it wasn't taught to adults in Ireland at the time. And also around the same time, her family fortunes began to fail and dwindle a little bit. Now, there's not a whole bunch written about the failure of the family fortunes, but I would imagine that that probably led to a situation where she was more adamant to become independent, which was difficult for a woman at the time, but particularly a deaf woman at the time. So it was while she was in London that she discovered Shaw, Ibsen and Chekhov and she became interested in stage and her work actually later drew comparisons to these playwrights. I think the favourite one of mine that I saw was her referred to as a smiling Ibsen. <laughs> wow. Although, like, is that a bit paradoxical? Yeah, I was just going to say, I don't think that would be hard. <laughs> also, don't forget, again, that she was deaf. So when she was going to see these plays, she was relying entirely on lip reading to see how they performed on the stage, which I think is really interesting. So while she was in London, she started to write under the pseudonym of D.B. Good. Nothing much seems to have happened with this work that she wrote under the name D.B. Good, but just that's kind of where she started out her career, if you will. She left London in 1990 at the age of 25, returned to landscape in Waterford, whereupon she immediately became involved in the Irish struggle for independence. So she was an ardent admirer of Constance Markievicz and an active member of the Waterford branch of Common Man, which I can still not pronounce, despite the fact that I have said it in so many podcast episodes. She also kind of would have moved in Republican circles. Again, there's not a huge amount written about her involvement in this, but it seems to have had an impact on her writing in later life. Also, could you be a successful person in Irish society in the 20s and 30s if you weren't involved in it? That's what I was going to say. It was like a lot of the women that we've talked about on this podcast from this era, they were probably like at the same gatherings. And, you know, even if their histories weren't necessarily linked that we see it, you know, they were probably all in the same circle. But also, like, Ireland is so small. Like, how many times have you met someone only to discover that you were in Irish college together or that your cousin shifted them at a disco 10 years ago or something like that? It's a small, small world. And how many of your friends have you heard have the conversation of, I went out with somebody a while ago and there was a while for about an hour or two where we thought we might be related, but we figured it out and we're not. I must say, I'm not sure about that conversation, but you obviously have. I've had this conversation with like seven people. No, I haven't. 
Maybe my friends are, I don't know, maybe the DNA test is required pre-date or something. Possibly. It's a genuine thing. I can't kiss anyone from Tipperary because I don't know if I'm related to them or not. (laughs) My family have been in Tipperary for a really, really long time. It's just safer to assume that I'm possibly related to an entire county. Stay back, Tipperary men. You're probably my cousin. (laughs) All right. So, kissing cousins aside... Let's return to DV. Let's not deviate. bum. Moving on. <laughs> so DV continued to concentrate on her writing and proved to be both versatile and productive. So she contributed several short stories to the local and national press and completed but never published a short novel. She then turned her attention to the Abbey Theatre and submitted two plays which were rejected. However, a member of the reading committee, Lennox Robinson, who became her lifelong friend and mentor, encouraged her to persist. And on the 18th of March, 1930, her three-act play, Reapers, finally opened at the Abbey. This was followed in 1931 by a one-act play, A Disciple. In that year, herself and Paul Vincent Carroll shared the honour of the Abbey play competition in Dublin with her play Temporal Powers, which was produced on the 24th of April 1932. This was followed later by two others, The King of Spain's Daughter in 1935, Katie Roach in 1936 and The Wild Goose in 1936. And her play Wife to James Whelan was rejected by the Abbey in 1937. So essentially, in the course of six years, she had six plays put on in the Abbey in the 1930s. The King of Spain's Daughter and Wild Goose seem to ring some sort of bell. So the King of Spain's Daughter and Katie Roach are considered to be her two most famous plays. Okay. So it is possible that you you have come across them. Also, Katie Roach has been revived a couple of times in the last few years. Oh, cool. But basically, yeah, you have this deaf, female playwright who is all of a sudden becoming the Abbey's darling and she's reaching critical acclaim. So it was an amazing achievement for a woman, let alone a deaf woman, to break through the glass ceiling and become an established playwright. And in D.S. Macwell's modern Irish drama 1891 to 1980, only four female dramatists are listed. Lady Gregory, Alice Milligan, Countess Longford and Teresa Deavy out of nearly 50 playwrights working in the Abbey and the Gate in that particular period. So she was quite prolific and quite well known. But as I said, she seems to have kind of fallen off in a way that maybe the likes of Lady Gregory haven't. It's amazing, though, that she had that many plays in the Abbey in such a short period of time it is very prolific and astounding considering she was deaf even aside from the deafness just anybody to have even nowadays a female playwright to have six plays in the abbey in six years any playwright even to have to write six plays in the space of you know that amount of time so there was a palpable hope that Teresa Deavy would be among those who would take up the mantle as part of a new generation of Irish playwrights However, quel surprise, it wasn't to be. So even at the height of her success, it was clear that Deavy was far from comfortable with the Abbey. In a January 1935 letter to her friend Florence Hackett in Kilkenny, Deavy wrote, something will have to be done about theatre in Ireland. It's appalling. 
in public, Deavy was equally critical of other aspects of Irish culture in the 1930s, particularly literary censorship. Who were the censors? She demanded in an open letter to the Irish Times in 1936. By what right do they hold office? And how, in case of proved incompetence, can they be removed? I find this aspect really interesting because she's a very devout Catholic who's still decrying censorship. So it's, it, it is quite interesting that she can hold both of those, those things at the same time. That is really interesting. Also, the way I feel like religion should exist in that, like somebody should be able to be religious if they want to, but also not have it as a as a means of forcing their will upon the state, which, as we all know, is exactly what happened in Ireland in the 1930s. She's a progressive Catholic. Exactly. So Teresa Deavy's plays came from the Ireland of the 1930s, a conservative patriarchal society where women were regarded as mere chattels and where they lived in economic bondage. I love this quote. (laughs) They were restricted intellectually, socially and politically. Her plays show us romantic young women who dream of and crave a happy love life, but who must accept the real world around them. Rural Ireland of the 1930s in all its ghastliness. Her writing gives no hint of her profound deafness. It is filled with euphonous language that should be spoken out loud to be fully appreciated. In contrast to the spoken language in her plays, we have her pointed use of silence echoing the lack of a voice of Irish women at that time. So her plays were written and produced at a time when the Irish constitution was being drafted. And remember that this is a document that would severely limit the role of women who were instrumental in the creation of the new Irish nation to that of wife and mother, they were relegated to the realms of domesticity. So these elements, while not front and centre of her works, were certainly touched upon. And it's it's interesting because she herself denied that she was a feminist playwright. But a lot of the academics that have started studying her work, because there has been a, a resurgence in academia around Evie in the last kind of 20 years or so, they all argue that she was a feminist playwright I mean she couldn't but be a feminist playwright writing about women in the 1930s particularly if she was involved with Markievicz and stuff beforehand I think up until recent times like people had a really big issue with taking on the label of feminist this would have been after the 70s but people would have been like had this association of a bra burning, you know, hippie or whatever. Like, I remember people in the 90s who are feminist writers and who are feminists in their ideals and everything wouldn't say that they were. And I don't know what the ideals or the ideas of feminism would have been at the time for her to deny that she was a feminist. So it's, it's that she denied that she was a feminist writer. And the theory that's been put forward by some of the academics that I read is that she was a woman in the 1930s. It was already difficult enough to be recognised and and to achieve the things that she achieved is phenomenal. That if she pigeonholed herself as a feminist writer, would that make it more difficult for her works to get out? Yeah. So it's it's just it is quite interesting in in that respect though, but then again, as feminists, we always want to claim everybody as feminists. So you give her a pass. It was like seventy years ago. Longer, ninety. 
I still think it's like 2000. I, it's so funny. I do this all the time. I'm like, I the last 20 years, I still think it's like early 2000s. <laughs> I'm still 10. It's fine. <laughs> so Teresa was ultimately a victim of the culture wars of Ireland in the 1930s. In 1939, a new play, Holiday House, was accepted by the Abbey and a contract issued. However, the play was never staged. And any attempt by Dee to find out why was met, in her own words, with evasive replies. So it's around this time that Dee broke with the Abbey Theatre, full stop. I've seen kind of different time periods, but the common consensus as to like her definitive break with Abbey is 1942, although it seems to have happened a little bit earlier than that. I have tried to pinpoint the exact reason as to why she broke with the Abbey, and the general consensus seems to be that she fell foul of the new Abbey director, Ernest Blyth, who was conservative, kind of moving more towards the Gaelic tradition and just didn't really seem to have much time for Divi. Now, she also stated in personal correspondence that Yeats was not a fan of her and her plays, and she felt that this contributed towards the Abbey's diminishing ardour towards her work. So... There could be a few different reasons, but irrespective of what the reasons were, she broke with the Abbey and her stuff didn't get staged for a really, really, really long time. There was one put on, oh, maybe in the 50s, I think, that was kind of as like a developmental experimental piece, but I don't think that was even put on in the full Abbey. I think that was put on in their developmental stage kind of the equivalent, the Abbey equivalent to what the Half Moon would have been here back in the day before it took it. Like a peacock, which wasn't around then. Yeah, that kind of idea. So throughout this time, Devi was renting a flat with her sister Nell at 16 Waterloo Road in Dublin. And one friend described the pair as, together they were one person, Nell the ears and Teresa the voice. Oh, which I just think is a lovely way to describe people. And of the two sisters, she commanded the most attention, being a playwright and totally deaf. And her friends and acquaintances included loads of famous writers and actors and painters and musicians. So she was living that old bohemian lifestyle. And yeah, never one to let the man get her down. After the Abbey systematically closed its doors against her, she concentrated on writing mainly and successfully for Irish and British radio. And she also achieved tremendous success in the pioneering days of BBC TV. So when I studied her in college, I actually studied a radio play by her. Oh, cool. Yep. Don't ask me what play it was. It was over 10 years ago and I cannot remember. But I just always found it really interesting that she was a really successful radio playwright who was deaf and radio only came to Ireland in 1926 and she went deaf in the mid 19 teens so she was deaf for 10 years before radio even came to Ireland so she never got to hear it she definitely never got to hear her own stuff and yes she did go to London but she was already going deaf if not deaf by the time that she was in London so it's possible that she heard radio as a child, but equally possible that her most one of her most successful mediums was something that she just didn't hear. That's crazy. And 
yeah, I just, that blows my mind. That's why she's always stuck in my mind as just being phenomenally successful at something that it's possible she couldn't comprehend in the same way as the rest of us did. I'm just protesting that. It's just taking a minute. I'm like, whoa. Like, obviously, she would, they would have had readings and stuff in person, but for her to never be able to hear the, the finished results, or, it's just so bizarre. But that's it. But even the readings, like, she would have been lip reading them. She's lip reading. She still would never have heard the inflections, the, the rhythm of it. Like, it's all just on the page and then lip reading. Crazy. But you know what? As a playwright yourself, maybe it wasn't the worst thing in the world because she could just imagine that it was going exactly as she had it in her head. That is a very, very good point. <laughs> and I'm sure there are times you would wish that you could just imagine <laughs> that it's all going perfectly fine and just the way you intended it. <laughs> so her contribution and achievement in Irish literature was formally recognised in 1954 when she was elected to the prestigious Irish Academy of Letters. Unfortunately, Deavy's enjoyment of this success was short-lived. Nell, who she'd lived with, her ears, died in 1954. And this affected her really deeply because she had not only lost a sister and constant companion, but also an indispensable lip-reading interpreter. So consequently, she returned to landscape where she lived with her only surviving sister, Frances, who was also completely deaf. Oh, so she never succeeded in recapturing the happiness which characterised so much of her Dublin heyday. She was removed from her theatrical friends and all of her acquaintances. And Frances, unfortunately, didn't share her interest in the arts. But she did remain quite active and apparently was a familiar sight on the streets of Waterford as she cycled on an old fashioned bicycle to and from relatives and friends. She remained an avid theatre and cinema goer. And she also became involved with the local amateur writers group and provided invaluable assistance and moral support to the then budding Waterford playwright, James Chesty. Stevie's health gradually began to deteriorate and the recurrent vertigo that was part of the, the disease rendered her unable to venture out of doors. So she spent her final day in Maypark Nursing Home, Waterford, where she died on the 19th of January in 1963. So as I she kind of fell out of fashion and nobody really spoke that much about her for quite a long time. I did find some articles from the 50s where people were really extolling her virtues and that she was one of Ireland's great playwrights and that like she really should be remembered. But there wasn't really that much kind of done about her until I think around 1994 the Abbey restaged Katie Roach and that was also revived in 2017 and a few of her works have been subsequently broadcast on radio and television so there is a bit of an uptick in her there was a special in one of the Irish literary journals specifically about Teresa Devey and maybe around 95, 96, which is where I actually got a lot of my information from. And with the increasing popularity of Marina Carr in what, the 80s, people kind of started to pay attention to Irish female playwrights again. But actually, there seems to have been like a massive dearth in female playwrights in the Abbey Theatre between Devi and Carr. There doesn't seem to have been much 
so yeah luckily people are paying attention to her now and the likes of me learn about her in university which means I can share her story with other people so yeah <laughs> cool I'll have to check um I'd love to hear like the original recordings or like the first broadcasts of some of the radio plays they're probably available online somewhere NUI Maynooth I believe it's either Maynooth or Galway have a Teresa DV archive oh sweet and I'm sure you might be able to find some of her stuff through that also as I said Aver Walsh in UCC seems to have a bit of a grow for her so he's done some work around her as well Cool, yeah, I'll have to keep an eye out, hopefully, when we all get out of lockdown and things go back to normal, keep an eye out for some new revivals and uh, check out her stuff. And damn Yates for keeping women at the door. Yes, you wrote some good poetry, but also it reminds me of leaving search. So. <laughs> Whoa, some fighting words for Yates. Fighting it words for you. I mean, he wrote a lot of fighting words himself. What was it? A terrible beauty is born? A terrible beast is born? I can't remember. He wrote about a lot of things. <laughs> Give me T.S. Eliot any day. That's all I'll say. <laughs> so, yeah, um, I forgot to do the normal warning at the beginning. This is once again over laptop. So apologies for the sound. And if you lasted this long, thank you for bearing with us. And... Thank you for listening and please do get in contact at The Phenomena Podcast on Facebook, The Phenomena Podcast on Instagram. And tell all your friends and tell us that we're class. I mean, you don't have to, but it would be nice. We just want some appreciation. Uh, I'm a bit hyper today. I don't know if you can tell that. So I'm going to go and run, run off all of this excess energy. So... <laughs> Shauna, any final words? <laughs> no, just thank you for listening. And yes, yeah, so on, guys. Bye. Bye.